Good afternoon. Joining us on the line now is David Vass. He's an accomplished monologist, performer, writer and activist, as well as the creator of the one-person play What Could Go Wrong? Musings of an eccentric raconteur who happened to be in the right places at the right times. During his years behind the scenes in show business, he was a road manager, technical director and or lighting and sound designer for 200 plus clients, including over 50 Oscar, Emmy, Grammy, Golden Globe and Tony Award winning legends and celebrities. In his new book, Liar, Alleged, A Tell-All, Celebrities, Sex and All the Rest, he talks about the fascinating world of the 60s and 70s New York City showbiz scene and talks about what it was like to be an openly gay man at a pivotal time in America's history. Welcome to the show, David. I am most indeed here, yes. Thank you, Hannah. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So, um, wow, lots to talk about with you, lots to ask you about. Why did you decide you wanted to write this book, first of all? Well, I've been wanting to write it for 25 years, but to be candid, which I am (laughs) in my book, I didn't have the courage to write it because I I wanted to be brutally honest And uh, honest memoirs, I discovered, don't do as well as dishonest ones. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just the truth. If you I mean, I I look through things online. I look at literary stuff that, you know, most readers wouldn't think about. But I do see that people who have made up most of their life um, seem to sell so well and people that tell the absolute honest, brutal truth about their lives don't sell very well, which leads me to believe something I learned many years ago, Hannah, which is that most people prefer lying to the truth. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's been my experience. And as a person with an addictive personality for my whole life, lying was one of my addictions. So if I'd written this book 25 years ago, it would probably have been an instant bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. So tell me, first of all, about your, uh, I mentioned in the introduction, growing up as, as an openly gay man at a real pivotal time in America's history. I mean, I, I know that's difficult to sum up in a, in a short interview, but what was that like? You know, Hannah, in the 50s, when I I was born in 1950, so I always knew, I just always knew that I was gay. It was never an issue. And coming from a dysfunctional family and being 11 years younger than all of my brothers and sisters, they were all too busy trying to get out of a dysfunctional, abusive house to pay any attention to me. So no one realized that I was gay except me. So literally, my first week in school, I went up to a teacher and said, hey, I'm gay. And the teacher, because gay was not a word that was used a lot in those days, in those times, you were a deviant or a homosexual or worse. And um, she said, oh, I'm glad you're happy. We're glad you're here, too. And I said, no, no, I'm not that kind of gay. I'm a homosexual. Well, you would have thought that I dropped a brick on her head. And... Off I went to the principal's office where I was told that I needed to be treated in a very special way because no one had ever come out in second grade before in the 50s. So moving ahead to when I developed what I call in my book, the pubic hair years, because I told my mother I was gay and she said, my mom 
God bless her, was an alcoholic and also with an addictive personality. And she said to me, David, you, you can't know what you are until you have pubic hair. So let's just put this conversation <laughs> off. Gosh. Well, I got pubic hair. So I said, okay, I'm still gay. So um, <laughs> she took me to a psychiatrist because a psychiatrist, if a psychiatrist could confirm that I was gay and we could get one for free because we were that poor. And so you can, poor people can get free things sometimes. So he said, yep, your son has a lot of problems, but being gay isn't one of them. So she said, okay, <laughs> then we have to find you a boyfriend. So fast forwarding to your question is, the only people I could find who were gay were stereotypical gay. They were either butches or femmes or perceived themselves to be tops or bottoms. They all played stereotypical roles. And Hannah, I believe that's because when they were growing up, the only thing they had to watch on television were married couples and one was a wife and one was a husband. And I think that was a safety net for gay people to take on a role, to do role-playing way before role-playing was popular, which it is now, and either be the butch or the femme. And I didn't want to be any of that. I wanted to be me. So I couldn't find anybody to help me figure out who I was. And But that's how I knew I was gay. I always knew. And I watched those stereotypes break apart. I watched the people of the world, the gay folk in my community who thought that they had to be a butch or a femme, I watched us younger people decide that we didn't have to label ourselves as anything. We could just be what we felt. And that was the beginning of gay liberation and the gay liberation front. And it was not just us gay folk feeling this way, us young gay people. Young straight people were burning their bras and having a sexual liberation as well. It mm -hmm. was... That's the times of the 60s and the 70s. And that's also the beginning of my book, how I got from there, because um, I don't know if you are aware or not. One of the reasons why I've already enjoyed speaking with you is because I love your British accent. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> and I stopped talking for two years when I was six because I had a speech impediment and a bad stutter. And no one had ever told me in my family that I sounded broken, that I sounded like Donald Duck or Daffy Duck. I sounded very broken. So I decided I was just not going to talk. Oh, and goodness. I know it was a sad it was a, it was a very weird thing that a whole family of eight people would never not one of them walked up to me and said, you sound funny because they were so focused on things other than me. We were just of different generations, I guess. But this speech therapist uh, who was free in the public schools after two years of not speaking, Marie taught me to speak. So I started talking again, but I over enunciated my words so much that everyone in white trash, Baltimore, Maryland, in the United States thought I was British because of the way I over pronunciated my words. Yeah. So it turned out I was fake British white trash. It was, oh. it was very interesting. Gosh. <laughs> and tell us about your uh, one of your first kind of jobs. You, you, you stumbled into the what you say was the dangerous world of strip clubs in the 60s. Yes. Well, I was still I had just started high school and I was desperate for money because we 
uh, it was a poor family and we had little to eat. And I had a sister, I had three sisters, but one was extremely uh, unusual and very pretty. And she decided that she was A, a lesbian, and which was shocking to her then husband, and B, was going to be a stripper. Well, in Baltimore, Maryland, in the USA, the largest stripping club section of the city called The Block was notorious around the country for having over 35 strip clubs in a three-block area. So she became a stripper, and I was doing local theater, and I knew a lot about lighting and sound and things from doing theater. And she called me, pre-cell phone days, called me one day and said, the woman who runs this strip club is looking for somebody to do lights and sound. You could catch the bus and do this. You could work nights and you could make $20 a night cash doing this. And I said, but I'm, I'm 15 years old. So don't you have to be like 18 or 21 to get into the club? And she said, David, this is a mafia club and the mafia pays off the cops. Nobody cares how old you are. Oh, wow. So at 15, I was catching buses back and forth going to school during the day and lighting strippers at night. And that's how I learned how to work with Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn and Lena Horn and many, many people of various colors. I learned how to light skin tones based on strippers because boy, did I have a lot of flesh to practice on. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That must've been so um, weird for you being, being in that world at such a young age. It was weird, Hannah, but it was also liberating because, the, you know, the good part of being so free of having a mother and a family that really didn't care was that I could do anything I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so there was a part of me that enjoyed the freedom of being in a strip club at 15. Plus, I got to look at cute guys. <laughs> and plus, the strippers all loved me because I was no threat to them. I wasn't trying to yeah. you know, do anything untowards with them. And um, the, the only challenge to that job was, was coming home on the bus late at night. I would be waiting at the bus stop. And cops would pull up and say, what are you doing this late at night on the streets? Because obviously I looked my age of 15 and I ended up in the back seat of police cars doing sexual acts for cops because they demanded that I do so. Oh, and that part God. wasn't so pleasant That's because but there was nothing I could do about it. A 15 year old boy in those days couldn't go to the police station and accuse a cop of, you know, demanding a sexual act because nobody would have believed me. Mm. And I would have probably been put in juvenile detention centers for working in a adults only club at 15 years of age. Yeah. So that was the down part of strip clubs, but it led me to show business. It led me to Betty Davis and Sarah Vaughn and Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and all of these people that I outline in my book, Liar Alleged, and some of their fan clubs, Hannah, are quite upset with me because I don't say nice things about some of them because some of them just weren't nice. Oh, really? Who wasn't nice? Frank Frank Sinatra was a total jerk to me. And when I was working with Peggy Lee, she said to me, you should never work with Frank Sinatra. And I said, why? And she said, because unless you're somebody 
If somebody wants your autograph, Frank will treat you great. If nobody wants your autograph, he will kick you to the sidewalk. You either have to be famous and he loves you or he treats you like dirt. And that turned out to be totally true. Um. And Sarah Vaughn told me the same thing, as did Nancy Wilson, a wonderful jazz singer who refused to work with him because, as he said to me, I don't work with drunks and I don't work with lazy singers. Because at some point in Frank's career, Hannah, he was... He had lost his voice. He was an alcoholic. He wasn't doing well. His, his pipes or his chops, you know, slang for his vocal abilities was not good. So he would make a lot of jokes on stage. He would change lyrics. He would use really good composers and arrangers to cover how bad his voice was. And then he would take a Sammy Davis Jr. or a Tony Bennett or a Perry Como or one of the el- elder men singers to sing so he didn't have to sing so much. And he'd always put a woman in the middle. Sometimes it was Judy Garland, who was also down on her luck. A few times it was Peggy Lee. But Nancy Wilson, Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald, they always refused to work with him because they knew how mean he was to the people that made them sound and look good. He was awful with us tech people, and everybody knew it. Oh, that's horrible. He wasn't the only one by, <laughs> by far, but um, probably he was the most famous one. But mm. the majority of the people that I worked with were really fabulous. I have some wonderful stories in my book about them. Can you tell um, us a quick one, a nice because, one? Well, a nice one was uh, there was a jazz singer whose name was Anita O'Day, who was one of the most controversial and out there progressive jazz singers of her time. She was considered a better singer than Ella Fitzgerald or Sarah Vaughan because of the way she approached her work. And she became a second mother to me. And one of my addictions was, well, I had every addiction you could imagine, alcohol, drugs, sex, you name it. I tried it. And she was the one who got me straightened out a little bit. Most of this was by phone when I wasn't working with her as her technical director. And at one point I was considering heroin and she was a heroin addict for 16 years. And she said to me on the phone, she said, David, you would make a crappy heroin addict. You will not last a week as a heroin addict. You don't have the right kind of personality. You overdo everything. You'd be dead in a week. I know how many addictions you have. Don't do heroin. The rest of them probably won't kill you. Heroin, you're going to be dead in a week. Listen to me. I've been there. Because Anita O'Day died legally three times and was brought back to life. Oh, my goodness. That made sense to me. I thought, okay, if somebody who's died three times tells me not to do heroin, maybe I really shouldn't do heroin. (laughs) That sounds like good advice. (laughs) Taking tough love to the extreme, yes? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So so do you feel it was quite cathartic then for you to eventually write this book and remember all the stories and, and write it all down? You, you kept a diary for many years, didn't you? I kept over 70 diaries, and it started when I stopped talking. I wanted to express myself, but because of my speech impediment, I didn't. So I started writing everything down. But we were so poor, I had no paper to write things on. So I would go out and steal books and steal diaries from five and dime stores, from pharmacies, and write in those. And I ended up 
having 70 of them. And that's what structured this book are all of the diaries that I kept my whole life. I'm so glad that I was able to keep them. And I do have good long-term memory. So this was a very cathartic thing for me to do because I'm off all of my addictions for some years now. I'm in a stable relationship. I created a corporate job for myself. And I came out the other end of the wormhole, which so many people in show business don't. So many of them just don't make it to where I made it. I got over my addictions. I got over my lack of self-worth. I'm, in a, I, I'm celebrating the 46th year of my relationship with my husband, Paul, as a matter oh, of fact. Oh, congratulations. And, That's wonderful. Thank you. I don't know a single celebrity that was with anybody that long, to be honest with you. <laughs> no, exactly. There were, you know, people think strippers were tough. And <laughs> I spent time, you know, working with the mafia as a money mule because in those days, basically, the record industry, the radio industry, and concerts, all of the box office money went to the mafia. It was a way that they had to launder money. And I was the person who would count the box office receipts, take the money, put it in a paper bag or an attache case, and meet Jerry the giraffe or Harry the lion or whoever it was at at a bar somewhere, look for the guy with the green hat and hand him off the money. (laughs) But if you compare the mafia people and the stripper people and all the weird people that I worked with to show business people, there is no comparison. Show business people by far were the most messed up of them all and continue to be to this day. Mm. That's why I got out of the business, Hannah, is because I knew if I stayed in show business any longer, I was going to be them. Yeah. And I didn't want to be them. You oh, know? Well, well done you for, for getting out and for, oh. for, for getting rid of all your addictions and everything. That's fantastic. You should be very proud of yourself. I am proud of myself, Hannah, and I'm, I'm really proud of my book, Liar Alleged, because aside from the fact that it's funny and it's all the ridiculous things that happened to me, dressing up in drag and robbing my mother, thinking she wouldn't recognize me, and all my <laughs> weird David moments, at the, at the base of this book, there's a cautionary tale to young people who have addictive personalities or the LGBTQ plus community that doesn't realize how hard people of my generation fought to be able to give them the freedoms that they can celebrate with now, which sadly, at least in the United States, are under attack again. Mm. So we've almost made a circle. I'm not not, uh, particularly feeling positive about the future politically for us gay folk in this country. Things have taken a turn for the worse. And this book might help people realize that. The book is all about First Amendment rights. Well, it's a fabulous book. It's available on our website, tre.radio. If people want to get a copy from there, it's called Liar Alleged, and it's by David Vass, who we've been chatting with today. David, thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to chat with you. Hannah, thank you very much for your time, and I hope you have a fabulous festive season, as they say. Thank (laughs) you, and you. (laughs) Okay, thanks a lot.